Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, and I am again joined by fellow editor Scott Benjamin. I'm back. <laughs> so, Scott is the co-host of Car Stuff, and we've been talking about Henry Ford, one yeah. of the automotive greats. And we've really covered most of his early career in our first episode, sort of the farm boy starts tinkering with engines, machines, ends up coming up with the Model T. And we even sort of went over why the Model T was such a revolutionary car. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So we're uh, we're getting to the point where you know we've we've gone past the point where he's he's been he's successful at this point, right? Yes, he is successful. Now, what he does with that success—that's another story because uh, he kind of goes off the deep end. Yes, where we left off, Ford was ripping apart a prototype car with his own hands. Exactly. Yeah, he had <laughs> uh, he had decided that you know the prototype that the uh, engineers had developed without his knowledge. Sort of an upgrade of the Model T. Exactly. An upgrade, a, a step up from the Model T. Uh, he was not having any part of that. No. And uh, in, a, in a dramatic fashion, he literally ripped the model apart piece by piece with his bare hands. So if, Steel metal. If this was a movie, we would have just freeze-framed on Ford ripping apart the car. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, and in this episode, we're going to really roll with that and and go to the stranger side of Ford. Yeah, um, we're going to take a, a hard left turn here into some of the uh, the more eccentric behavior. Weird territory, exactly. And I think that that story really epitomizes the the obsessive control that Ford had on his company, you know, being so against upgrades, so against his engineers doing something without him that he would physically rip apart a car. But that control really does extend to other aspects of his business. And one of those aspects was materials. And this makes sense in a way because his his assembly line was so high functioning that a lot of times he would run out of a material because his suppliers couldn't keep up. Mm-hmm. And if they had a shortage, then that was going to slow him down. Sure. So his first way to deal with that was to stockpile things like mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about upholstery, things like that, mm-hmm. um, that he was not actively making. Just stockpile it, and if their production slows, at least he'll have it. But he started to think, well, I'm so good at this. Why don't I control all of these, all of these raw materials? So he bought a railroad. He bought coal mines. He bought acreage of timberland, glassworks. The most extreme example of this is, of course, Fordlandia, which I know you love. Katie and I have done an episode on it. For those of you who haven't listened to that episode, he creates his own model village, a Ford-type Fordlandia, Mm -hmm. in the middle of the Amazon rainforest in order to control rubber production. It doesn't play out that way, but just the idea that 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 would be the preferable solution. <laughs> yeah, that, that place is huge. It's 5,000 square miles. That's the size of Connecticut that he purchased. And if you look at the map, I mean, you could do just a quick Google search and type in Fordlandia and get a map. And it points to the middle of nowhere in, in Brazil. It's south of the equator, you know, south of uh, Guyana. It's way down there in the middle of Brazil. Um, I think they said that even if you get to the nearest provincial town, it's still an 18-hour boat ride to get to Fordlandia. And the crazy, maybe, maybe I don't know. I'm not going to say the crazy thing because there's everything's crazy about it. it. I guess it's a good idea in in, in general, but 
um, it just never worked. And he never visited. <laughs> he never visited the place. He's never been there. And that was pretty bad for morale, apparently. I would bet it would be because <laughs> the people there are expecting Ford to show up and run this place, right? Mm-hmm. So they're thinking that you know they're going to be among uh, you know. The chosen Ford employees. Exactly, the American elite, right? And uh, so they're there at this plant that's just an idle plant. It's an idle village. And and people live there, and people live there now, which is crazy. You You can go there and visit, and the people apparently, for some reason, still think that there's a possibility that maybe Ford will fire this thing up again. (laughs) <laughs> that it's that it's possibly going to produce rubber at some point in in history. Even though farmed rubber in uh, I think all except in Asia has proved pretty impossible. And this place was abandoned in 1945. That was officially like you know it's just we're done with it. Ford kind of you know washed its hand of the whole thing. So that's our extreme example of trying to control materials. Uh, and but you have, uh, you have I have one, one <laughs> more small example before you go on, because he bought up smaller towns in Michigan to do the same thing with wood, because he was uh, producing uh, the Woody station wagons, and he was using somewhere on the order of like I think it was two or three million board feet of lumber every year, or something like that. It was an, an enormous amount of wood, and he thought, well, I'm going to supply wood, you know, with the the forests in Michigan. And the same thing that happened in Fortlandia. You know, they built this this great uh, you know compound, and you know, it's it's like its own mini city self-sustaining in some ways, and then it just died away. I mean, we should give some examples of this working, though, this idea of buying up related industries Mm -hmm. to make them work for you. Um, One example I found, when the River Rouge plan opened in 1927, ore that had been taken from his mines and shipped down, would enter one of would enter the plant and then come out as a car only 28 hours later. You know, all the power coming from coal that was from his mines, everything coming from a Ford-owned property and turning into a car well, in such a short amount of I time. I feel like I need to clarify something. When I said <laughs> that this is a good idea when I was mentioning Fordlandia, I meant something like that mm-hmm. in that, you know, a self-sustained company. That, you Cut know, out the middleman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how else would you save that? That's a tremendous savings for him in, in the long run. Uh, but when you when you invest millions and millions of dollars into uh, you know the the, the jungles in Brazil yeah. and then never go there and it's never used, that's wasteful. It's one thing to buy your own railroad, yeah. another to buy jungle <laughs> property. Yeah, like buying your own railroad. That's perfectly sane, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, for a guy like Ford. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's his toys, right? Um. So. This control, though, really extends beyond materials. Because so far uh, we're just talking about materials. You can understand a um, an industrial yeah. an, an industrialist like Ford wanting to control his materials. It's a little less savory when somebody tries to do that with people. Yeah, we're getting into the weird area here. We are. Um, we're not already there. <laughs> okay, so here we are. It's like 1914, 1915, somewhere in there. Uh, Ford offers the $5 workday. And this all plays into this somehow, I'll tell you in a second. Offers the $5 workday. And that just blows people away. They can't imagine making $5 a day at a production job like this. It's, it's twice it's, as much, exactly, right? Exactly, twice. Yeah. As you'd be expected to make. Yeah, other autom- automobile manufacturers are paying half that price. And he's paying that, he's offering that much, and it's only an eight-hour workday. Instead of a nine-hour day. Instead of a nine-hour day. But it's But it is, initially, it's offered at six days. So you're working eight eight hours a day, six days a week, which was then cut back to five days a week, so a 40-hour week. But um, 
regardless of that, it drew people like you couldn't believe. I mean, people came from all over, well, probably the world, but at least the United States. Uh, they were flocking to Ford, you know, for this five dollar an opportunity to make five dollars a day. Now, Ford saw it a different way. He said, "You know, I'm going to offer you this five dollars a day, and I expect this much work out of you, and that's fine." Uh, but it also gave him, or what he thought, um, kind of it, it broke down the boundaries. It did. Him. He thought it was such a generous salary that it gave him the right to control non-working aspects of his employees' lives. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so he's, it's almost like he's purchasing the people. It, I mean, it is. It yeah. is kind of like that. It's more like indentured servitude oh, in a this, way. This is bad. <laughs> this is really bad. So he, he forms, now I get this, the name is, it's funny, the Ford Sociology Department. A little disturbing. Yeah, the Sociology Department. Now, the Sociology Department originally had about 30 investigators, and these investigators, now remember, you're making $5 a day, so you've got to expect this, right, according to Ford. They would come to your house, and they would take notes on every aspect of your daily life, everything, your whole family, not just you. It's it's the people that you live with, what you do, where you live, how you conduct your business at home, what you know, anything and everything about your personal life was exposed to him. And, you know, that that's one thing. You could maybe expect, uh, all right, the guy's coming over tonight. Let's clean up the house, make sure we're on our best behavior. People were going to be at work, too. There were going to be informants, yeah. spies, all working for Ford. So if you were maybe just complaining a little bit to one of your coworkers, maybe if you took a break for a minute from the assembly line, you could expect all of that information to get back to Ford. Isn't that, an, that's amazing to me. Yeah, plus, you know, health issues, drinking problems, gambling issues, anything like that. It's not going to be, even if it doesn't interfere with your work, it's going to. And so for $5 a day, he felt that this that this purchased him the right to you know uh, i guess install this this bizarre monitoring of his employees daily lives i mean everything every aspect of their life this isn't the only strange thing that he uh, strange department i think that he formed i, I came across another one that uh, i had just recently read about i knew kind of the the characters involved but i didn't know that this was called this he also had another uh, division, we'll call it, that he uh, that he called the the Ford Service Department. Now, the Ford Service Department that sounds like something you sounds like they work on cars. Exactly, <laughs> you drive to the service department today and get your uh, oil changed, right? Mm-hmm. Not the case. In uh, in what was this from like 1930 to about 1947 when Ford died? Um, he he hired a guy named Henry, or I'm sorry, Harry Bennett. Who was his own bodyguard. Exactly. This is this is Ford's personal bodyguard. He hired him to be second in command at Ford, basically. Um, and he he ran Ford with an iron fist. Now they say that, you know, Ford was the man in charge, of course, but you know, Bennett was he's the guy He's the enforcer. He's the presence. And Bennett it was up to Bennett to hire employees to work under him. Guess who he hired? Who? He hired the worst of the worst. I mean, he hired um, pro boxers. He hired wrestlers. He hired con men. He hired thugs. He hired hoodlums. People from the underworld that you would normally avoid hiring. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and not to say that, you know, the, but these are people that, you know, are on the uh, the edges of society. And they were hired not because they were reformed from that life. Oh, no, no, no. Because they were very much in it. You, you um, recommended... I look up pictures yes. from one of these incidents involving the service department. and uh, The Battle of the Overpass. The Battle of the Overpass. The guys look like 
they were out of work because Capone was in jail or something. Exactly. Doesn't it look like every gangster movie you've ever <laughs> they seen? They look like your stereotypical gangster, and they look like they are spoiling for trouble. And those are Ray Bennett's men. And he hired he had a uh, an entire army of these goons that would go out, and uh, they were the they were um, the union busters. These are the guys that you know if there was a threat of a union strike because Ford hated unions, he hated you know um, every aspect of it. He just couldn't stand it. So if you're on the line marching, watch out for Bennett's goons because they're they're coming. There's no doubt about it; they're going to be there in some way. And they didn't care who's watching because the Battle of the Overpass happened uh, right in front of. Reporters, cameras. They had, um, you know, they had still cameras, and in fact, they had a lot more than what you'll see. If you do a search for this, I encourage people to go and look at stuff all the time. Um, If you do a search for Battle of the Overpass, you'll see the photos that exist from this. Most of the photographs were destroyed by Bennett's men. Uh, They, after they attacked the um, the the organizers of the event, Walter Ruther and um, Richard Frankenstein, I think is his name. they uh, they then turned on the reporters that were recording this, and, and even ladies who were there handing out pamphlets. Yeah, they and when you say they turned on, they they beat them up. I mean, they were yeah. kicking them and punching them and dragging them down iron steps. And you can see photos of these guys just black and black and blue and bl- and bloody afterwards. Uh, the only way that these photographs got out is is an amazing story. One of the photographers. Um, actually walked to the edge of the overpass, ran to the edge of the overpass, and dropped his camera into a passing convertible. And the convertible sped off with the, with the camera. You know, this is a plan. Right out of a movie. Exactly. It was a plan <laughs> to get the photographs out because they knew what to expect. Yeah. And, of course, the reporters, you know, you know, probably beat silly. So, yeah. So when we talk, I mean, that gives um, sort of new context to talking about the spies and mm-hmm. informants, too, because they're not just trying to figure out what your life is like. They're trying to figure out if you have union sympathies and you mm-hmm. see what happens if you do. And what's so weird to me in all of this is that, um, you know, by this point, Ford had allowed some of the company control to go to his son, Edsel. Yeah. But that was really nominal control. And that's not because Edsel was an incompetent uh, manager and an incompetent executive. It's because his father really didn't trust his judgment, didn't want to relinquish control. And and Edsel was thinking a little, I don't know, in a more modern way about this, thinking, well, we should make a deal with the unions. We should come to some sort of agreement yeah. while all this violence is happening that is supported by his father. Yeah, Ed, Edsel was a bit more sympathetic than, than Henry, of course. I mean, far more. But the problem was, you know, he had given control of Ford Motor Company to Edsel in 1918. So that's relatively early on in this thing, right? Yes. I mean, he had he'd actually... Given up control, which is hard to believe, but Henry had still commanding rights. He had he had a uh, the ability to veto any decision that Edsel made, and he often did. And that, to me, it says, well, why is Edsel even there? Yeah, it's almost like he's <laughs> Go just get a different job. He's Edsel. <laughs> just a figurehead, but you know, he's Henry's trying to give him some some freedom, yet still he's he's got that iron fist grip on him, um, just not allowing it to happen. Can you imagine how that made Edsel feel? Not good, I, and and I mean he he died pretty young. Yeah, um, and it sounded like he had a, a difficult life on under that iron thumb of of his father working at his father's company. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the next generation a little later, mm-hmm. um, but you know I think the next thing we have to address here we've talked about Ford and the unions and and the spying his anti-Semitism. Oh boy. And it really goes beyond just his his own personal opinions because he works quite hard to broadcast them. He thought that Jewish interna- 
international bankers were responsible for World War One. And it's strange, on the one hand, that belief manifested in some surprising pacifism on Ford's part. In 1915, he traveled to Europe in this attempt to staged some peace talks, mm-hmm. and uh, it was all aboard this ship called the Peace Ship, which got him a lot of criticism. <laughs> but he also bought a newspaper. He bought the Dearborn Independent, yeah. and that was specifically to, to use as a platform against Jews. These editorial comments or these editorial uh, columns that he would write that uh, that went in, or other writers would, would you know, supposedly he was reviewing all this. He was editing this, 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 uh, this newspaper. Yeah. Supposedly. He, later he would deny it, but um, had very, very strong anti-Semitic statements in them. Um, you know, I, 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 just to go back, I mean, Henry, he blamed everything mm-hmm. on the Jews. I mean, he, right down to, the, you know, the, the world, both world wars um, with the sinking of the Lusitania. He was one that kind of bought into that conspiracy theory that, you know, it was sunk on purpose and mm-hmm. that's what started this whole thing. Um, but these these were just filled with anti-Semitic views and viewpoints that... This is. Should we get into like the European part of this right now? I think now? Because, we should. Okay, I, I don't think we can go without mentioning uh, that. Okay, here's. This is so bad for Henry at this time. I mean, but you know, he's the one putting this out there, so we, we have to report on it, I guess. Um, you know, all these these anti-Semitic viewpoints made their way over to Germany, and to a certain individual named Adolf Hitler. Pre World War II Germany. Yeah, this is this is prior to Hitler being the Chancellor. Um, but unfortunately, Hitler kind of gravitated towards his views and said, you know, I, I, I like the way this guy thinks. Yeah, a successful American industrialist with views that seem similar. Yeah, exactly. And so it, this is bad news for Henry because he's doing so well here in the States. You know, everything's going, going just fine, more or less. Um, Hitler picks up on these things, actually has the stuff translated into German and distributes it. Yeah, this series of articles on the, quote, international Jew. And, and, and they're quite popular in Germany, too. Yeah, there's a book called The International Jew. And mm-hmm. it's it's really just the clippings from the, Deer, what was it, Dearborn? Dearborn paper? Independent. The Dearborn Independent. And this is so unfortunate for Henry because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels Badly, you know, terrible enough that you know the, the parallels between Hitler and, at, um, I'm sorry, and Henry Ford. And I'm not saying Henry Ford is a, a Nazi in any way. I'm saying that he had these anti-Semitic views. Hitler liked these views. And then, if you recall, remember we said that. Um, well, you know what happens with I mean, the, the whole anti-Semitism in, in Germany. But um, going back to the everyman's car. That was also something that Hitler kind of patterned after Henry. I'm sorry, yeah, after Henry Ford, and said, "I want to make an everyman's car for Germany, the way that Ford made one for the United States, and it's going to be the Volkswagen Beetle." And you know, there's mm-hmm. a whole story about that too. But so here in the states, you can imagine what this is doing to Henry Ford's reputation. It's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse every day. Yeah, and, as, as more comes out about Hitler and what kind of. Uh, policies he's instituting in pre-war Germany, and, and with the onset of the war, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it just it pushed it over the edge and and you know, it made him a very unpopular character. And Ford kind of tried to back out of things. You know, mm-hmm. he you you had mentioned that eventually he he said, oh, I wasn't that involved in the paper. He did uh, retract some of his statements, but according to Biography Magazine, he also didn't try to stop the publication of yeah. the International Jew until the middle of World War II, until things were. Clearly beyond bad. Um, 
that you know that says something. Well, these are outrageous, outrageous views. I mean, the stuff that you'll read or you'll hear about this is is amazing. I mean, and his hatred for this group. I mean, it goes back. He he blamed everything on them. He blamed. Uh, Music on them. He thought uh, movies were were sinful. That you know, he was very he had very Puritan, a very Puritan aspect about him. He did. He didn't like dancing. He didn't like music. He thought he it was liked just old fashioned dancing. He, he would stage dances where, uh, you know, and think about this is like the twenties or something. Yeah. So people are doing dances like the Charleston. Yeah. He would stage dances where you could do the polka yeah. or the Virginia reel. But to hate films, I mean, he hated films because they were filled filled with uh, sex and sin. And but here's the interesting thing: like he would also in the newsreels wouldn't have a problem with Ford Motor Company being you know prominently displayed in the in the news to promote the vehicles. Yeah, he clearly couldn't reconcile his business sense yeah. with his personal beliefs. Yes, yeah, so it was very conflicted, very conflicted. But, um, you know, it's just really uh, terribly unfortunate timing for him. And, and not only that, I mean, you know, these outrageous views, what what was the guy at, in this position doing releasing this type of material? Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I just can't... Why get... didn't somebody tell him, okay, no, yeah. <laughs> Henry Ford, yeah. back off Yeah, from back this. it down, back it down. What's, I don't understand. What's really strange, though, is... is this kind of undoes some of his personal reputation, mm-hmm. but it also helps make his company, or at least the war does, not these views, but the the existence of mm-hmm. World War II helps save his company in a way because he is so old-fashioned, he is so resistant to change that uh, by the by the 30s, his company is falling into lower places. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're not the top car company mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, so he's uh, you know he's realizing that by uh, you know by World War II we're talking um, oh my gosh we're talking almost forty years or thirty five years after the, the the beginning of his company or the Model T rather anyways not the company um, they realize that they got to kind of move in a new direction so they're you know they're they're coming out with new models which I'm surprised ever happened but you know they had the Model A mm-hmm. which they renamed A because it was like a complete start over is what he said <laughs> you know it couldn't, he couldn't go on from the Model T to uh, you know the model U. Um, he went. He went right back to A. He said, "No, it's a totally different vehicle." Uh, even though there's a lot of similarities, but um, he was just he was quirky in that way. And you know, he said, "You know, World War One. He was kind of a pa- he took the pacifist role. Mm-hmm. Uh, was more for peace and peace was more ship. yeah exactly. Well, in World War Two, then you know things changed and everybody was kind of on board with uh, with war production. So we've we've talked about you know some of the plants you know off air. We've talked about the, the way the plants could adapt to. War production, and you know, instead of making engines, we're going to make bombers, and instead of trucks, we're going to make tanks. And you were telling me that plants can—they still have that capability to make a few changes on the line mm-hmm. and dramatically change what they're producing. Yeah, going from producing buses to producing tanks. Tanks, exactly. Yeah, there's, it's very modular, and they could they could shift over within a matter of hours. I mean, I think that's a great example of how the. How the moving assembly line works, mm-hmm. why it works. Yeah, I mean, to this day, I mean, it's a great idea. It's one that, you know, has never really gone away. Um, he just took what was already there and perfected it. So while we're on that subject of Ford uh, really working on something until he has a great product, mm-hmm. we've got to talk about some of his weirder experiments. And, and some of this is really cool. Some of it is unexpected. Some of it is way before his time. I think this is very unexpected from yeah. Ford. I, I just would never see a guy that you know wouldn't even consider moving on to a different model of vehicle for 19 years <laughs> that uh, he would do something like this but he was he was heavy heavy into soybean research and it doesn't sound like that's automotive related but it but it very much is and this is this is one of those just crazy things i mean he 
he was so into it, he made food with this, he made fibers with this, he made plastics with this, and the plastic thing is where it came into play with the automobile. He actually created a plastic automobile in 1941 that made you know the circuit. It would, ri- it would drive around with reporters, and mm-hmm. you know people could feel and touch this vehicle. It was a full-size vehicle out of plastic that was made from soybeans. And it just this had never been done before. And he also had this vehicle. It, now, that wasn't his personal vehicle. There's a white vehicle that you'll see in press photos, and that was the all-plastic vehicle. Uh, he himself had a black vehicle that he fitted with a plastic trunk and, you know, the soybean material that he made plastics out of. Yeah. He would, for reporters, he would demonstrate the uh, the resilience of this material by striking it with an axe. It, you know, <laughs> he would hit it himself with an axe, his own personal vehicle on the trunk, because it had this one panel. Public display of what had happened a few years earlier. I know. <laughs> this is so crazy. He would he would put like a uh, like a rubber sleeve on the sharp end of it, so it wouldn't you know puncture it. Mm-hmm. But he would he would swing as hard as he could at the trunk of this thing with the axe, and it wouldn't dent. Uh, but the axe would fly out of his hands, you know, 15, 20 <laughs> feet in the air, and, you know, everybody would take photos, and it would be a, a great photo opportunity with Henry Ford. And you can see a lot of photos of him doing this. Um, really, really fascinating. But, you know, it didn't just end there. He went into, you know, he would have reporters to the Ford Mansion and host luncheons where every course of the meal would be soybean-based. Well, because he was very interested in diet. I, yeah. I hadn't known that about him. Yeah. Uh, again, it, it kind of does make sense. It's some some um, intense control over his life again. Yeah. But he loved vegetables. He loved to eat soybeans. You were talking about meals that were entirely soy-based. Yeah, he made, he would make, um, the, the meat would be soy soybean-based. So he'd have some tofu or exactly. something. Exactly. It was something like, you know what, though? It would taste like, uh, like... Um, pork chop or whatever mm-hmm. he would he would uh, develop these things so that they tasted that way. It's very advanced. He should have um, lived in the seventies. <laughs> and you know he had an entire you know part of it. There was a there was a whole compound of of um, uh, labs on his facility that that were just strictly devoted to soybean science, and they would create you know soy milk and um, ice creams and candies and and even get this this is this is maybe even the the strangest part. He would wear a suit that was made of soybean fiber. So he had a, a soybean fiber suit that was, you know, I think there's some wool in there too. But um, so he's wearing the soybean suit to the soybean luncheon with now all I'm these reporters. Now I'm imagining him like Henry Ford as Willy Wonka. Yeah, or something but you know what? It looked, soybean. it just looked like a normal suit, you know. And mm-hmm. then there's, there are photos of him in. The, you can go to the Fairlane Mansion and you can look. You know, there's a. Um, a restaurant there, and there's photos on the wall, and you know there's him wearing a soybean suit. All right, so before you guys go out and Google pictures of Henry Ford in that bean suit, we've got to switch gears for a minute. All right, Sarah, let's get back to talking about Henry Ford. Yeah, let's do that, and let's go back to plastic development. Why why didn't that take off? What you know, happened? I think, I, I personally believe this is just poor timing, uh, because it was 1941 when he made the... Um, when he made the entirely plastic vehicle and he was demonstrating all this and then the war hit and things really regressed at that point you know we were just strictly trying to find as much metal as we could and and build as Mm -hmm. much uh you know war machinery as we could and then after that you know the soldiers come back and they want something different and it just kind of things had passed by and you know he's not in control anymore at that point and he's well actually he's dead yeah um he died what was it 1947 Mm -hmm. um so you know things things changed dramatically after that point it's just kind of an idea that went away and then you know the next thing you know it's uh, 1980s and we're hearing about saturn with this new plastic automobile well Mm -hmm. it's not really so new not that new Mm -hmm. and i i think um 
What's interesting about this is if maybe that idea had been just a few years earlier, the war might have actually given it a push instead of holding it back. Since wartime metal rationing, a plastic car starts to sound like a pretty good idea. It's just right on the cusp there, too late to really make it a reality. He had had a lot of great ideas. I mean, he really did. He really had a lot of great ideas, but he he was big into perfecting things. Um, he, was, he was a fascinating, fascinating character. And, I, I mean, one quick little anecdote here. That, I mean, sure. this is from a piece of listener mail that actually came into car stuff. And we read this on oh, you know cool. on our show. But uh, someone was taking a, a, an airboat ride in the Everglades. And the guide pointed out the Spanish moss hanging from the trees. Uh-huh. And he said, you know, that Ford used to come down, would send people down here to harvest the Spanish moss and bring it back to Detroit and pack it into the seat the seats of the oh Model T early on. This is ha- this is like the early early Model Ts, and then the uh, the people that would buy the Model Ts would realize like, well, I'm getting this kind of funny rash on my legs. <laughs> and the gross thing is mites, mites, oh, yeah, Spanish yeah. moss mites, and yeah, they would filled with mites. it would burrow through the material into the skin, and they would lay eggs in the oh, people's gosh. skin. It's so gross. <laughs> So, you know, it wasn't long after that that they decided, well, we're going to do it with cotton. But, um, again, just an interesting idea that, you know, and who knows, maybe he would think this is a great idea and buy a bunch of uh, Everglades, you know, property. Just I, for the moss. Exactly. I know. I feel like that, that mites are in the moss. That's something you learn, like, first time uh, you go to the yeah. beach. Don't take the Spanish moss home with you. And he'd be competing for land with uh, Disney at the time. Yeah. You know? That would be weird. <laughs> That's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah. But um, we've got to talk a little bit about his nostalgia too. So yeah. we've talked about all these innovations, all these yeah. innovative ideas, but he certainly realizes late in life how much he's changed the world, mm-hmm. how much he is directly responsible for changing the United States and and probably influencing worldwide mm-hmm. ideas. Um, and he's a little bit nostalgic for his old country farm life that he wanted to, to leave. And we've already talked about the dances. You know, he's yeah. like, Young kids today well, do the polka, but it really extends to uh, an interest in preserving history, too, which is so ironic because one of Ford's most famous quotes is, history is more or less bunk. For a guy who said that, he becomes <laughs> so interested in preserving the history of his boyhood world, his boyhood heroes, guys like Edison, guys like the Wright brothers. And I think you can talk about this a little bit because you've been to the place that is the shrine to this preservation. Yeah, I've, I've been to the Henry Ford Museum, which is an incredible, incredible museum. I, I don't think I've ever been to a better museum from my point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I love that place. I can spend days or weeks there. Um, the uh, The other part of that that uh, complex, I guess, you know, it's built, there's a test track right there. It's right in Dearborn. Uh, is Greenfield Village. And if you remember, well, I don't know if we even mentioned or not, but he was born in Greenfield Township. Mm-hmm. And he built... You know, he went to move to Dearborn, and he built this little this little land for himself called Greenfield Village. So, you know, obviously he's trying to even replicate the name of the place. But yeah. what he does with this place, this is so this is so neat. He he brings parts of what he remembers as being his America uh, to Greenfield Village, and you know that may be. I mean, it's it's pretty expansive. I mean, this is a ninety acre property. It's got something like eighty three buildings on the property, and these are all historic. Historically significant buildings. It's uh, it's Henry Fire. I'm sorry, Harvey Firestone's entire farm 
from uh, from Ohio is brought there. Edison's lab. Edison's lab with some of the original, you know, the original light bulbs and you know all the original furniture and everything. Some of that stuff was nailed down so it was never moved on the way. You know, just mm-hmm. brought the entire building. Um, the you know Orville and Wilbur Wright, their uh, their bicycle shop that they owned in Dayton, Ohio. That's he's got there. Lincoln artifacts. He's got he's got a uh, he's got a courthouse that Lincoln actually practiced law in. Yes. Which is incredible. Um, every every single thing has some hi- historical significance, and again, it's it's taking. He's trying to build that 1880s lifestyle in you know 19 the 1930s in you know the place that he he now owns. Mm-hmm. This is an enormous piece of property in Dearborn, and and like setting that off against what's happening in in the rest of the country, you know the interstate system going through old landmarks, things like that, actively trying to preserve something, realizing what is happening and what he wants to keep from from how he remembers the country. Exactly. There's even like a steam engine and now this is a recent addition, but you can have you can take a a ride on a Model T through the property, which you know you couldn't have done (laughs) at that time, but now you can. Um, you'll see if you go there ever, and I, I really I mean I encourage people to go there. It's beautiful. Um, but you'll see kids like rolling hoops with sticks oh, and things wow. like that. They have all kinds of fun things. I mean, you can even watch like what baseball was like back then with the people playing with the old mitts and old balls mm-hmm. and bats and it's in the old uniforms. It's really, it's really a fascinating place. It sounds very a, cool. A step back in history. So, I mean, I guess that about wraps it up then for, yeah. for Henry Ford. He died 100 years to the day after his father had immigrated from Ireland to Michigan. Um, just, Tying up this, bridging two different worlds, tying up this this amazing life with extreme highs and extreme lows, really. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know what? Even to this day, the fa- the Ford Motor Company remains a family business. It does. Uh, what's, what's, I mean, I I won't go into all the detail here, but um, there's a Ford at the head of Ford Motor Company right now. Um, William Clay Jr. is the um, is the head of it, and you know his father's still in town. His father's still alive, which was one of is the only. Living grandchild of Henry Ford is still is he still around? He's wow. like he's in his upper eighties, <laughs> yeah. and he owns the Detroit Lions at this point. But uh, you know he's he, all through history. There's been a Ford somewhere involved with the company. Well, so it is a, we had said we'd mentioned Henry Ford the second too. His his grandson who took over the company at the very end of his life. Yeah. Um, he had this strange relationship with his son Edsel. His grandson, I think he might have seen him as kind of a threat to that power, yeah. but finally. With his wife strongly urging him yeah. on, he did relinquish a lot of his control to his grandson late in life. And um, you know so much about this, I guess, because it gets into the modern history of Ford. Mm-hmm. But Henry Ford II really changes the kind of company it is. Yeah, exactly. And you know, from that point forward, it, uh, it was very—it's been very successful ever since. Um, and it was—it was up to that point, but there were some real shaky parts in there, um, you know, around the war time. Uh, but, you know, now that, now that we've got William Clay Ford Jr. in, in, in office, he's, uh, his actually official title is the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company. Okay. Um, and his father, William Clay Ford, is, uh, is still sitting on the board. So, you know, Ford, it's, it's far-reaching. I, I wonder who's going to be next. Because uh, you know William Clay Ford Jr., he's, he's only 55. That's kind of nearing retirement age. Who's up next? I don't know. I, don't, I, I just don't know who's... Who's going to be next in power? I guess we'll find out eventually. I would think so. <laughs> but uh, interesting family. This guy, he's he's just he's brilliant. I mean, he's probably he's a bord- genius. He's borderline genius. He's an innovator. Um, I don't know. He 
you know, he, he had a temper. He had these bad sides to him. He's a, he's got a tyrannical side. <laughs> very, very uh, eccentric, you know, but, but overall, I mean, this guy, when you start reading about him, it doesn't sound like, you know, before you even listen to this podcast, you may not have thought much about the guy. I think this will encourage people to read about him. I think so. I definitely want to learn more about him, and uh, I'd love to visit the museum you're talking about yeah, too, and, and see see some of this legacy. And, and I, I know you, you could probably speak more about this too. But Ford seems like they have accepted Ford the company. Seems like they have accepted and um, well, I don't want to say embrace, but accepted their founder's entire history. Mm-hmm. Nobody's trying to sugarcoat. No sugarcoat things and you don't have to you know there's enough that makes the man undeniably impressive to talk about the the less impressive things too um so very interesting guy thank you so much for for suggesting him so wholeheartedly uh he's been really fun to learn about oh, good i'm glad i i felt the same way i i um i knew he was an interesting cat to begin with but then when you start <laughs> digging into you know some of the the biography material it's like he, he you just want more and more and more. Yeah, you start learning things like just one last weird fact. Yeah. The Ford Mansion, which you said you had visited, yeah. he had hot and cold running rainwater in every bathroom, <laughs> plus tap water. Yeah. Just, you know, in case you wanted a refreshing rainwater you know, I'm bath. Gonna, I'm going to add to this, too, because it it's a 56-room mansion, I think. Mm-hmm. And they said that they built, you know, all these extravagant things like a pool and a... Um, bird baths were heated. Yeah, bird baths were <laughs> heated. But but they had all these, you know, like they had like a bowling alley or whatever. And they had all these activities. And it was all to keep Edsel Ford from, you know, wanting to date girls and to, uh, you know, wanting to drink or smoke or whatever. Take the Model T out for a spin. Exactly. Yeah, they, they felt that this is a way to distract him was to have this grand home and he'd have lots of things to do. I think my favorite home amenity, though, I kind of wish I had this, an underground pipe that would suck dust out of the house. Oh, cool. I don't know how well that worked. It seems like if that was a possibility, everybody would have that. Uh, we wouldn't I've, have to worry about vacuuming. I've got to get that. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. So um, I guess that's it for Ford yeah. for now. Um, Katie and I, as I mentioned, did an episode on Fordlandia uh, what kind of episodes have you all done on, on Ford? I'm sure oh, we've got, countless episodes. Well, the, you know, other aspects of Ford. We might have covered the Model A or the Model T, and we've, mm-hmm. we've talked about even starting a Model T because that's quite a chore. Um, just in general, we've done, we've done a piece on did him. Did you have to crank up the Model T? You did. Oh, yeah, boy. yeah. And it, it was <laughs> an arm breaker, I'll tell you that. It really was. It Unless was, you're Ford and you can rip apart it would, cars. It would snap your arm. <laughs> that's how dangerous it was. And it's, oh it's, and nothing was standard. It's a really an, a unique car, but there's, there's a lot of history there. So y'all should go listen to some of those episodes on Scott's podcast, which is called Car Stuff. If you want to share any more ideas about Ford, any other, auto greats you'd like us to discuss at some point. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we are on Facebook. And what kind of Ford-related articles? I mean, the classic How Stuff Works article is how engines work, but what what have you edited recently that you think is really Ford-related? You know, we've got some Model T information, you know, kind of product overview type stuff um, specifically for the Model T. And mm-hmm. I know there's some stuff out there. I've got a, a blog that's about... Um, uh, starting the Model T, which is really interesting. I mean, that, that we mentioned that that thing's difficult to, to get going. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's just a lot of Ford information. If you, you can search, you know, Ford and, and get information about the entire company, just an overview. But um, anything and everything automotive is on our site. 
All right, and Scott has edited most of it. You know, one fun fact about Scott, if you see a strange prototype car and give him a description of it, he can probably identify it for you. Maybe, (laughs) maybe. I hope I don't get you inundated with emails now. But yeah, if you want to check out some of that information about Ford, about the Model T, about cars in general, it is all on our website at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.